from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 23rd. Today, the latest impeachment news. How the Saudi crown prince may have hacked Jeff Bezos. And the best part of Wikipedia pages. Thank you, Chief Justice. uh, And thank you to the senators for two now very long days. We're greatly appreciative. So, Amber Phillips, today is day three of the Senate impeachment trial, the second day when House managers, Democrats, are making their case against President Trump. How was today different from what we saw yesterday? Adam Schiff started the hearings on Thursday by saying, And here I must ask uh, you for some forbearance. I know that you guys are, are complaining to reporters about us repeating a lot of stuff. Well, we're going to be repeating a lot of stuff. I want to explain the reason for it. You've now heard hundreds of hours of deposition and live testimony from the House condensed into an abbreviated narrative of the facts. We will now show you these facts and many others and how they are interwoven. You will see some of these facts and videos, therefore, in a new context, in a new light, in the light of what else we know and why it compels a finding of guilt and conviction. So there is some method to our madness. At the same time, he's continued to make this case that that Republicans should join Democrats and introduce new evidence in the form of documents and, and Trump's top aides testifying and, and his point was, then we wouldn't be repeating as much. That basically the reason why we have to repeat everything is because we still only have essentially the information that we had during the House impeachment hearings, but that if you were allowing us to bring in new witnesses and introduce new evidence, then we could talk about new stuff. But you're not allowing us to do that. Exactly. But there's an inherent tension in that argument that Democrats are making because the same time they're saying, we haven't gotten to the bottom of this They're also saying, we know exactly what Trump did. It's irrefutable. Enough for you guys to kick him out of office. And that those things are not the same thing. Right. They're in contrast with each other. I don't know that they're mutually exclusive. And you also saw that at various points today where you had House Democrats basically trying to make Republicans look hypocritical, going so far as to bring up video of what people had said in the past about the powers of the president and about what an abuse of power looks like and what it means. He brought up video of Alan Dershowitz, who is now serving as a president's lawyer. He brought up video of Lindsey Graham from the past. And that really seemed to be an effort to undermine what Republicans are going to be saying in coming days. That's right. Uh, Democrats were saying, listen, some of you are sitting here in this chamber who argued Bill Clinton should be impeached two decades ago for lesser things than what Trump is accused of now. And you used, uh, in Lindsey Graham's case, those exact same arguments we're using today to say he should be thrown out of office. And I might say the same thing of then-House manager Lindsey Graham, who in President Clinton's trial flatly rejected the notion that impeachable offenses are limited to violations of established law. Here is what he said. What's a high crime? How about if an important person hurts somebody of low means? 
It's not very scholarly, but I think it's a truth. I think that's what they meant by high crimes. It doesn't even have to be a crime. It's just when you start using your office and you're acting in a way that hurts people. I also thought it was rather pointed of of Democrats to bring up Alan Dershowitz. He is this Harvard law professor who used to be on the left and has now enraged the left because he's now on the right on, on Fox News defending Trump and saying he shouldn't be impeached for this stuff. And he's on Trump's legal team, and we can expect him to defend the president in the coming days. Another who comes to mind is Professor Alan Dershowitz. At least Alan Dershowitz in 1998. Back then, here is what he had, what he had to say about impeachment for abuse of power. It certainly doesn't have to be a crime. If you have somebody who completely corrupts the office of president and who abuses trust and who poses great danger to our liberty, you don't need a technical crime. Essentially, that you don't have to commit a crime to be impeached, which is something that President Trump has been out there saying inaccurately, that he, you have to meet the statutory criminal code in order for Congress to throw him out of office. I'm also curious about how the senators who are sitting in the chambers are doing. I'm not sure the chief justice is fully aware of just how rare it is, how extraordinary it is for the House members to be able to command the attention of senators sitting silently for hours (laughs) or even for minutes for that matter. Um, Of course, it doesn't hurt that the morning starts out every day with a sergeant at arms warning you that if you don't, you will be imprisoned. Um, It's our hope that uh, when the trial concludes, and you've heard us and you've heard the President's counsel uh, over a series of long days, that you don't choose imprisonment instead of anything further. Because we talked yesterday about how it was already clear that people were getting bored, and today we saw tweets about Richard Burr having a fidget spinner and Marsha Blackburn reading a book openly during the Senate impeachment trial and whether things are really devolving in terms of the attention span of of senators or even any pretense that they're really listening to and processing the information that's being spoken to them. It does seem like senators are just blatantly, some of them, tuning out in this trial. Marsha Blackburn, in particular, you brought up, is someone who went out of her way to go on social media and say, yes, I'm reading a book during this trial. That's wild. She tried to say it was, like, tied to the case, but but she didn't explain why you wouldn't listen to Democrats explaining the case. It suggests that Republicans are not taking this seriously anymore, they're, you know, they swore that oath of impartiality at the beginning, but there's nothing holding them to that. There's no punishment for violating that oath, for reading a book or playing with toys or just getting up and walking out whenever you want. Um, and it definitely suggests that Democrats are going to have a hard time convincing any Republicans to join them going forward on some of these motions they want to do to keep the trial going. So what are you going to be watching for on Friday and Saturday? So Democrats have one more day of being able to present their case. How are they going to wrap this up? We just talked about senators not focusing, being bored. I notice Adam Schiff, the lead impeachment manager, as someone who loves to come on in between each presentation and tie it in a nice tidy bow. So how is he going to take all of this information, 24 hours worth, and put it together succinctly and clearly? Saturday, total sea change in the impeachment trial. 
At this point, Republican senators won't be sitting there feeling like they're being lectured by Democrats, which is how some of them have described this trial so far. We're going to have President Trump's team begin their defense. There are indications, though they haven't outright said this, that they are going to be shorter. We also saw Tuesday when they got up debating the rules of this trial in favor of a, again, shorter, succinct, in-and-out kind of trial, that there was political attacks in very personal ways to some of the senators sitting there. Uh, They used hyperbole, at one point accusing Democrats of an an undemocratic kind of foreign country in the way they're behaving with President Trump. And at one point, there were flat-out inaccuracies. It's a very Trumpian style of defense, and and I'm interested to see how they do that. Amber Phillips reports on politics for The Fix. For more updates from the Senate impeachment trial, check out our impeachment podcast feed. It's updated daily with the latest stories from Post Reports, along with some of our other politics podcasts. Subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Well, I have the awkward task of writing about the owner of the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos, who uh, is better known as the founder of Amazon. And in this particular case, uh, he's in the news because despite being head of a major technology company, he had his phone hacked. And and not only that his phone was hacked, but that it was hacked by the head of the Saudi royal family. Yeah, so that's the news here. Mark Fisher is a senior editor at The Post. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, and Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, happened to be guests at the same dinner party in Hollywood when uh, the crown prince was visiting the United States. And so this was a high-powered dinner. And as uh, in the course of the evening, crown prince and Jeff Bezos exchanged phone numbers because they wanted to have a texting relationship. And uh, later that evening... Bezos sends a text on WhatsApp to the Crown Prince and says, hello, MBS. That's what he's known as, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. And the next morning, because they're not adolescents, the Crown Prince comes along and returns the message and says, hello, Jeff, I've saved your phone number. And as we find out later in this UN report, boy, did he save that phone number. Some weeks down the line, Bezos receives another text on WhatsApp from Mohammed bin Salman. There's no text attached. There's no conversation going on. Nothing precedes it. It's a promotional video in Arabic about the telecom prospects of Saudi Arabia. What a great market it would be if someone wanted to invest there in telecommunications. And contained in the video, according to this allegation, according to this report, is a single line of code, just a byte or two, that allows the Saudis to take over Jeff Bezos's phone. On Wednesday, the United Nations released a report concluding with medium to high confidence that a phone associated with Mohammed bin Salman was behind the hacking. And now there are a lot of questions remaining, including whether this was the hack that unearthed private texts and photos that were leaked and published by the National Enquirer last year. Those texts and photos showed that Jeff Bezos was having an affair. Someone had hacked Bezos' phone and extracted an enormous amount of information over a very extended period. And it now appears that that infection 
came from the personal account of the crown prince. So the richest man in the world is attacked by the leader of the world's largest oil exporting nation. The context for this is that on the very day before that dinner party, the Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, a longtime critic of the Saudi regime and who has left Saudi Arabia and living in the United States, writes a column highly critical of the crown prince and his reform efforts, saying this is just window dressing and he uh, – Khashoggi feels that uh, what's going on in Saudi Arabia is actually a deeper level of repression of people even as the regime tries to dress it up as reform and liberalization. And so according to this report – the people who conducted it, do, do they believe that what was happening here was that that Mohammed bin Salman was trying to get secret data off of Jeff Bezos's phone in an attempt to blackmail him or influence him or get him to stop the Washington Post from from writing stories that were so negative about the Saudi royal family? We don't know for certain what his initial motive was. The United Nations statement does say that this was part of an effort that the crown prince and his regime had been undertaking against Saudi dissidents around the world, against others, in which they were essentially surveilling these people electronically. And so it may be that the initial idea was let's just keep a watch on Jeff Bezos. Let's see what he's up to. There was, in addition to that social relationship between the two men at the dinner party, there was a business relationship that was budding. Uh, Jeff Bezos was looking into opening three data centers in Saudi Arabia, which would be the first big Amazon venture into Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi Arabians were very interested in that because they really wanted to establish their country as a place that was open to the tech industry in a way that hadn't been before. It would eventually all fall apart as the relations between Bezos and the crown prince collapsed. But at that point, uh, there was a budding business relationship. And maybe this was just your standard business spying where people wanted to find out uh, what a rival or potential partner is thinking and doing. And what has the Saudi royal family said about these allegations and and the evidence against them? And is there any world in which they could face some sort of, I don't know, of prosecution or, or at least repercussions for potentially having done this? Well, the Saudis are denying any of this. They're saying that it's all absurd. The crown prince would never do this. Although, strangely enough, uh, Washington Post correspondent Karim Fahim in Istanbul was able to report last night that there are people in the crown prince's direct circle who say, well, the crown prince would never have uh, spied on Jeff Bezos's phone, but some of his aides might have. They might have had this technology and, and just couldn't help themselves but using it. And so it looks like there's an attempt going on now within the royal court to deflect blame for this away from the crown prince and to people around him. Why do you think this story is important beyond just what it means for Jeff Bezos and his own concerns about his own privacy. Well, it's a story with many tentacles. I mean, it's 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 not just Jeff Bezos, Amazon, Saudi Arabia, and, and the various business interests that they have. It's the National Enquirer and their expose about Bezos's extramarital affair. And why were they doing that? And why was President Trump so interested in that? Why was the National Enquirer so interested in the marital relations of a big American businessman? That's not their usual territory. Uh, he's not uh, kind of the kind of celebrity that they normally write about. Uh, why were they so quick to deny that 
President Trump had anything to do with this um, and to the extent that they attempted allegedly to extort and blackmail Bezos when he accused the Saudis of playing a role uh, in this on behalf of President Trump. I also think that it's interesting to think about this in the context of what some people are feeling, which is somewhat of a disillusionment with Saudi Arabia, right? We saw that politically happen in the wake of Jamal Khashoggi's death, where you you had at least some politicians or some U.S. leaders rethinking the relationship with Saudi Arabia and whether we really are allies. And I wonder if some of that is happening in the business world as well, where you have someone who like Jeff Bezos, who is looking at Saudi Arabia and saying, yes, like it makes a lot of sense to do business with these people in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of money to be made, but that could come at a cost and that this is, that these aren't relationships that should necessarily be trusted. That's exactly right. And in fact, it was really noteworthy that the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia, who uh, was asked about this whole mess at uh, the World Economic Leaders Conference in Davos earlier this week, the very first thing he said was, of course, this is absurd. The crown prince would never have hacked Jeff Bezos's phone. And then the next sentence out of his mouth was, but this won't have any effect on investors' willingness to pump money into Saudi Arabia and to expand that economy. To the extent that that regime has been willing to murder a Washington Post columnist or hack the head of Amazon's phone, these are indications to people who run large businesses that maybe this is not a place we want to entrust our investments. Mark Fisher is a senior editor with The Post. Now, one more thing about that little section on celebrities' Wikipedia pages, the section labeled personal life. I was talking with a coworker recently about what would make it into my Wikipedia personal life section. It would probably say like a very basic fact, like she is from Ohio, and then it always kind of follows up with something completely out of nowhere. And for me, it would probably be like she is from Ohio and she fears flavor because that's something a lot of people know about me. It was like, I only like plain food. So I feel like that would somehow make it in there and it would be really embarrassing, but true. My name is Emily Yar and I'm an entertainment reporter for The Post. I find myself looking at personal life entries on Wikipedia pretty much constantly because I write a lot about celebrities and even if I'm going to their Wikipedia page to find out like a movie they were in, inevitably I'll go right to personal life first because that's where the good stuff is and then I tend to go down a rabbit hole from there. I knew that I did this all the time on Wikipedia, but I was really curious if other people did too. And when I looked online, a lot at social media, I found so many other people do this. So it made me feel a lot better about myself, um, for sure. But then I learned a ton of really interesting things about people's internet habits. One really interesting thing I found is that the personal life section on Wikipedia is kind of a long-running joke in the LGBT community because I found a ton of tweets from people just basically saying, 
personal life is like where you go to find out if a famous person is gay. A lot of people I talked to said that they go straight to the personal life section to look for a relationship drama because that's obviously such a fun thing <laughs> to know about celebrities. They were either married to people you didn't expect. They've had a lot of marriages. Maybe they dated someone and you're like, I didn't even know those two people knew each other. And then inevitably you click on that person's page and you, it just spirals out of control. And before you know it, it's like three hours later. There was a New Yorker piece on a an ex-girlfriend of mine and in that that New Yorker piece, there was a brief mention of the fact that I had a unicycle propped up in the corner of the, the apartment. And since then, that's that's stuck as my personal life. I talked to this illustrator named Landis Blair, and I had kind of stumbled across his page. I think someone had actually tweeted, like, this is the best personal life section on Wikipedia. And it just says, Landis rides a unicycle. It, it, it's, it's a bit strange to have that be the one personal fact that's on, on my page, Ben. Also, I'm in some sense, grateful because I'd much rather have that than other deeply personal things that I don't want anybody to know about. I think that people's obsession with the personal life section of Wikipedia really does say a lot about who we are as people because I just I think it's fascinating that even if it's a celebrity that you're not likely to know or ever meet, you still like want a personal connection with them. I think that's sort of the motivation for seeing, you know, how many times they've been married, their religion, their sexuality, like other um, parts about them as people. I mean, personal life sections are just so wonderful because like where else are you going to learn that Jason Mansukis, who who plays the really weird guy on Parks and Recreation in The Good Place, has a severe egg allergy. Like, I don't know where I would have ever found that out. Emily Yar writes about pop culture and entertainment for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow, the story of a family that embodies the debate over reparations. Like we said before, you know, forget it, you know, we can't worry about the past. We gotta, you know, look to the future. You people, you know, young, young, younger people felt it wasn't right, and we realized that you young people were right. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.